0: This is the Plant-Fueled Podcast. My name is Cass Warbeck. I'm a doctor, plant-based athlete, and vegan lifestyle advocate. This podcast is all about sharing conversations that will elevate your performance and your health. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. My guest today is Brenda Davis, a registered dietitian and one of the world's leading plant-based pioneers and an internationally acclaimed speaker. Brenda has been promoting plant-based diets since making the transition herself in 1989. She is very well-known and highly respected within the plant-based community, and I was so honored to share this conversation with her. Her personal and professional life goals are one and the same, to make this world a more sustainable, more health-supportive, and kinder place. Brenda's work focuses on ensuring that everyone who wishes to be plant-based can succeed brilliantly. She's the author of 13 books, several of which were essential resources for me during my transition to a vegan diet years ago. Today, our conversation focuses around her most recent book, Plant-Powered Protein. So, as you can imagine, our conversation today is essentially a complete guide to protein for vegan athletes. We discuss the heightened protein requirements for athletes, the myth of plant proteins being incomplete, meeting loosing needs for optimizing muscle protein synthesis, the pros and cons of protein powders, the optimal timing and dose of protein consumption, easy substitutions to boost plant protein intake, whether male athletes should avoid soy, and so much more. Please enjoy this one. Hi, Brenda. Welcome. I'm so excited to have you here. And I just, oh. before we start our conversation, I just need to tell you, you've been a huge inspiration for me since I started my plant-based journey oh. many years ago. I had some of your original books and yeah, I can't thank you enough for being here. It's an honor.
1: Oh, thank you so much, Cass. I'm, I'm amazed at what you're doing and, and uh, so happy to have another plant-based physician amongst us here in Canada. And uh, yeah, that's such an
0: honor. I'm so glad that uh, the books were of such value to you. That's so much value. It was like my go-to resource when I wasn't sure about getting enough, like of a certain uh, micronutrient or the best sources for something. And and yeah, um, on that note, you have another book out. Um, it's called The Plant-Powered Protein. And I believe this is your 13th book. I just want to say congratulations. Yes. <laughs> that's such <laughs> an achievement. Thank you so
1: much. Oh, thank you so much. I, you know the whole. I can remember 35 years ago when I first started as a plant-based or vegan really dietitian. Uh, it was so scary because in my profession, vegetarianism was considered sort of risky, and veganism was just considered downright dangerous. And and so for a dietitian to be doing that, I I just felt like I would be viewed as such a fringy person. So I was really determined to be super accurate in everything i say make sure everything was evidence based and and my goal was exactly what you were talking about i just so desperately wanted to make sure that anyone that wanted to live a sort of a more compassionate conscious life and choosing to eat a plant based diet that they could succeed brilliantly for themselves for their families and i You know, one of the worst things that can happen as as plant based individuals is is to end up with deficiencies and then we become exhibit number one for why everyone's justified in eating their meat and so on. And so I really wanted to help people avoid that and to just be as healthy as they could possibly be. Well,
0: Mm -hmm. I think it's fair to say that you've done a really good job with that. Oh, and that's one of the things I like to emphasize, too, is I think as um, plant-based people, I guess, we are um, basically a walking like billboard for the um, plant-based movement. And if we're not doing it right, and if we're not setting a positive example, I truly think that's what's going to draw more people in. And we need to make sure we're doing things properly. And again, um, you've been essential to this part of the movement. It's
1: it's like we're on trial in the eyes of the world and until there are people that are born and raised 100% plant-based and and live their entire lives as plant-based individuals and we have all of that um, you know data and so on um, people are always going to be a little concerned and you know
0: is it safe and will it you know will I end up with a deficiency so yeah. <laughs> well, I think that uh, kind of ties into what we're going to talk be talking about today is like um focusing our conversation around plant protein for athletes, because this is an area where athletes and like the general population seems to be obsessed about where they're getting their protein from. And it's even more heightened in the athletic community. So absolutely. <laughs> before Maybe before we get into that, I just, why do you feel, maybe I just answered my own question, but why do you feel that your latest book, plant Powered Protein, even needed to be written? Like what, what were the gaps you were trying to fill with this book?
1: Well, you know, it's funny, <laughs> it's a bit of a story, but it was our publisher's idea. He said, you guys have to write a book on protein. And we said, well, why on protein? We tend to get enough protein anyway. And he said, every single time I'm at a booth selling books, that's the question everyone asks me. Well, if I did this, how am I going to get my protein? And he said, I just really think this question needs—it deserves a definitive answer. And we thought you know, why not? We could explore aspects of protein nutrition throughout a life cycle for athletes. We could explore plant protein versus animal protein in terms of, uh, you know, environmental consequences and so on and so on. And there seemed to be so much that could be answered that we thought it would be a reasonable
0: project to take on. I, I completely agree. I can see it being one of the resources I recommend to future patients. Um, oh, thank you <laughs> I'm, I'm really curious um was there one thing that stood out as surprising you or maybe something that you learned while writing this book like your are well knowledge, you know, but you
1: know. yeah no you know there were a lot um but the one that kind of sticks out the most I think is is dealing with seniors um because it seems as though seniors really don't uh, and they're not able to digest and absorb amino acids as a younger person does, and 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 they require a little more leucine to you know avoid sarcopenia and some of the age related bone and muscle losses that that are experienced. And 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 then to look at these the individuals where at a time in your life where you're energy needs are declining and you don't eat as much and you don't have as much of an appetite often, here you are needing even more protein. And that's a, that, that makes it a lot bigger challenge, I think, for people that are committed to whole food, plant-based diets because our food is less concentrated in protein. And so when the calories are limited, It just means a little bit of a shift in the way you're thinking about your meals. And so it was surprising to me to see the evidence for increased needs
0: um, of protein for, for older individuals. Yeah. I've, I've heard a little bit about that before, but again, I wasn't quite sure how rooted in evidence and science those recommendations were just maybe for context, how much extra protein are we talking? Like, well you know it it's it, it, it's a little scary
1: it's like 25 to 50 percent higher oh, so that's a lot so yeah so so you know typical recommendations for adults are 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight, and for seniors we it's usually one to one.2 and and so and sometimes you even see 1.3 and there are actually some countries like Australia and and some European countries that actually actually have separate RDAs for seniors for protein. Uh, we don't have that in North America, but most of the experts uh, are sort of conceding on that point and saying, yes, seniors do need more protein. And, and, and it's because they just the protein they're eating isn't getting broken down into the amino acids as efficiently as it would be for a younger person, and that's you know that's the issue. And of course, in seniors, we see muscle loss, sarcopenia. We see um, increased risk of fractures, and uh, you know other things too, like hair loss, and you know skin and nail and you know problems. And um, there there are lots of things that we see as they're not maybe meeting their requirements so that becomes you know a little bit more of a challenge for plant-based eaters.
0: Okay well thank you so much for starting to bring more awareness to this I think just as you were talking about that I was just thinking back to some of my experiences like um, on rotations in the hospital and it was always the the seniors the older people that were laying in bed all day and I just like they're losing so much muscle mass and it's like exponential once you've been admitted to hospital I honestly believe that one of the best things you can do as an older person is to try and maintain your muscle mass because your muscle mass is it's truly tied to your um, functional ability and your ability to age well and your independence so oh absolutely very passionate about you know
1: my my mom's eighty five years old and And um, she does um, an exercise class almost every day. And if if she's not doing a class, she'll do walk at least once or twice. And, you know, it's always moving. And I look at her body and it, it really doesn't look that much different than it did 20 years ago. She's maintaining her strength and stamina so well. But it is so tied to physical activity. I couldn't agree more so important
0: um okay at the expense (laughs) of getting sidetracked from what i want to be focusing on um, (laughs) i feel that could be an entire conversation on its own so i'll bring it back but coming back to protein for athletes and this athletic population which is makes up most of my podcast listeners um one of the first questions I always get when someone learns that I'm vegan and that I'm so involved in sport, they always ask me, where do you get your protein? And I would love to know, how would you respond to this? What is your typical answer? Well, my my typical
1: answer is just from plants. Um, but I, if they'll allow me, I explain, um, you know, all plant foods uh, contain protein, uh, unless they're highly refined like sugar or oil, but all whole plant foods contain protein. Um, And and what a lot of people don't realize is the amount of protein is, you know, humans need what 10 to 15% of calories from protein, some athletes will go closer to the 20%. But but what a lot of people don't realize is most plants contain more than 10% of calories from protein. So, so legumes um, contain 20 to 40% of calories from protein. A lot of non-starchy vegetables contain 20 to 40% of calories from protein. Uh, you know, um, uh, nuts and seeds and, and, and grains are all, you know, close to 10 to 20% of calories from protein. The only foods that really fall below that threshold are fruits, which, you know, sort of contain up to 10% of calories from protein and starchy vegetables, which are usually around seven to 12. And, and so if you, if you um, are consuming a wide variety of these whole plant foods and you're not diluting it with a ton of sugar and oil, um, your, your intake is probably gonna be around the 15% of calories from protein, which is, is really very, very reasonable. Um, and so, you know, I tell people that the most concentrated sources are beans and lentils and chickpeas and so- soy foods like tofu and edamame. And then, of course, you've got seitan and veggie meats, which have about the same amount of protein as meat. Uh, and, and you know, it, it it one of the things that often surprises people is that, that some of the big studies, like the Adventist Health study, too, actually showed that the vast majority of us exceed the RDA by quite a bit. In North America, it's about by 50%. Even in the vegetarian population, it's more in the non-vegetarian population. But but we all came, you know, close to 20 or 30 grams of protein above the RDA. Um, And, of course, athletes need more. Um, They need more per kilogram body weight than non-athletes but they eat more. (laughs) And so, you know, when they include protein rich foods at each meal and with snacks, they generally quite easily meet their needs. So, but yeah, if people are open to learning a little bit, there's lots that can be shared.
0: Okay. So typically if you're meeting your caloric needs as an athlete without too much extra planning, most of the time you'll be getting enough protein if you're eating a variety of plant foods, not eating too much fruit, Um, That's kind of what I'm hearing there. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can eat a lot of fruit because you can
1: eat a lot of calories, but, um, but you do need to focus maybe a little more than the average person on the protein rich plant foods. Mm -hmm. So you're wanting a little bit more from the legume family and from seeds. Uh, So that, that would be important. More important than reducing fruit would be reducing intake of of things like that that are just zero protein foods so like the oils and sugars if I mean certainly athletes more than anyone else can afford to eat some of those but when most of your calories are coming from whole plant foods y- your protein needs are going to be a little higher than if you're adding a ton of oil and sugar
0: okay perfect um, I eat so much fruit so I'm happy to hear that yeah me too um- <laughs> I love fruit <laughs> <laughs> um, when it comes to specific protein recommendations so you mentioned for the general population the rda is 0.8 grams per kilogram body weight typically what range are we looking at for athletes and does it change depending on like if they're an endurance athlete versus a strength athlete
1: yeah so so the typical there's no separate rda per se for athletes however some of the sports authorities, like the American College of Sports Medicine, which, which you know partnered with the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, they suggest 1.2 to 2 grams a day. And then the International uh, Society for Sports Nutrition so- suggests even a little higher, 1.4 to 2 grams per kilogram body weight. Now, um, plant-based whole food high-fiber eaters might actually need to add ten percent to those figures, just because the digestibility of, of protein from whole food plant-based diets is probably about ten percent lower than it is from omnivorous diets. and so if you really want to be right there, you would you know you're, you're, what happens is essentially the fiber carries with it a little bit of protein um, right through the GIT and you you excrete it in your stool. And so you're losing a little bit. Um, and if you think about it, when you're eating nuts or seeds, or you know a lot of these high fiber foods, you're not chewing so thoroughly that you'll be able to extract every little bit from those foods. And so you lose some calories and some protein um, from those foods. So that's just something to be uh, aware of. And, and while that sounds like an enormous amount of protein, Athletes, as I mentioned, consume an enormous amount of calories, often double that of non-athletes. So meeting these goals, you know, like let's say you have an 80 kilogram athlete who needs 120 grams of protein a day. If that athlete were consuming 3,500 calories a day, which would be very typical of an athlete, um, that would be less than 14% of calories, which is a very typical intake for a plant-based eaters. Or a plant-based eater, and and you know when you think about that, it's just um, it, it it just makes sense that that athletes need more calories. They're got, they're going to automatically be getting
0: more protein. Perfect. I really appreciate you breaking the numbers down. I think it's just it's very easy to understand that way. Yeah. Oh, and then Cass, you asked about endurance versus strength.
1: Mm. So endurance athletes tend towards the lower end of that. That range is sort of in the 1.2 to 1.4, unless they're ultra endurance, like Scott Uruk or someone like that, who's, you know, running crazy, crazy miles. Um, but, um, but, but generally, it's the strength athletes that need the higher end of the spectrum. So
0: you're looking at 1.6 to
1: 2 grams per kilogram for those folks.
0: Okay, perfect. And then are there any groups of athletes who would require even more? And I'm asking this kind of a leading question that I've heard that athletes who are dieting or trying to cut weight, but also maintain their muscle mass. So they're reducing their calories, but trying to maintain what they have. Perhaps like an athlete like myself in a weight sport. What are the, did you come across any recommendations for them? Yeah. So, so generally what's recommended for, for, for people
1: that are trying to cut you know, um, uh, fat, for example, um, is 1.6 to 2.4 grams per kilogram uh, in order to lose or, or to avoid the loss of lean body tissue while you're restricting calories. So because because the calories for protein will be used for calories uh, when you're when you're cutting calories like that. So you need to boost protein to avoid that
0: the, those kinds of losses. Okay, that's yeah. actually not as much higher as I would have thought. So that's really good. Um, yes. Also easily <laughs> achievable. <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. Is there a problem with getting too much protein? I know some athletes specifically, like, I don't know, some strength or power athletes, they'll often recommend you hear on the online articles, one gram of protein per pound of body weight, which, which is a lot. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, is, is there a downside to aiming that high? Obviously I guess you're displacing other, um, nutritious foods, but
1: yes, exactly. and 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 most of the evidence I've seen suggests an upper limit of about two point five grams mm. per per uh, kilogram body weight. Uh, it's you know you're you're getting too much uh, beyond that. and And of course, the downsides of protein are very much dependent on the sources of that protein. So if you look at um, studies that compare, uh, the consequences of consuming animal versus plant protein, what we see generally is we see increased mortality and we see increased risk of type 2 diabetes, cancer, cardiovascular disease with higher intakes of the animal protein. And so because that animal protein comes packaged with um, a saturated fat and and. You know, NU5-GC, which is a pro-inflammatory molecule and heme iron, which can be pro-inflammatory and and the precursors of TMAO, which is a a very atherogenic compound. And and of course, as we move up the food chain, we're increasing certain persistent organic pollutants. And so there are a lot of things. And of course, there's no fiber or phytochemicals or, you know, those kinds of, of more protective components in the, you know, when you're getting your protein from muscle. Whereas if you're getting your protein protein from plants, you've got fiber and phytochemicals and antioxidants and um, prebiotics and, you know, sterols and stanols and all of these things that have been associated more with reduced risk of death and disease. And so it's so interesting. There are are several studies that have actually quantified the impact and looking at, okay, what happens if you replace 3% of calories from animal protein, 3% of calories from plant protein and 3% of calories in a 2000 calorie diet is like 60 calories. It's not, not very much, but the impact of that, there have been a number of studies that have looked at specific replacements. So if you replace red meat, if you replace processed meat, if you replace eggs, and, and, you know, just showing the, the reduction in risk of death or r- risk of cancer or whatever. And it, it's really quite shocking uh, how much impact that can have. So I think that's one of the tremendous advantages of relying more on plant-based foods because that protein tends to be protective against overweight,
0: obesity, chronic disease and death. <laughs> that's a pretty, pretty strong answer there. I I (laughs) completely agree with you. And I think a lot of the time athletes are people that are very active. They almost think because they do so much exercise, they don't need to worry about some of these more chronic diseases, or they don't think ahead to the future too much yet. That's completely the wrong mindset to have. I think like, we should be thinking about our health now and our health in 10, 15, 20 years. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, So coming back to, we were talking about um, if, athletes can get enough, like the quantity of protein on a plant-based diet? And you answered that very reassuringly. Um, Another argument that's also made or often made against plant-based protein is that it's lower quality. Um, And usually these people um, tend to cite the amino acid leucine, which is often talked about as being key in stimulating like muscle protein synthesis. And so generally, plant-based proteins are lower in leucine than animal protein. Um, And so, do you think this is a concern, and can athletes get enough leucine and other amino acids from plant-based diets?
1: Yeah, and and so first of all, the quality question. Mm-hmm. And for so many years, protein quality was just you know based on two things. Uh, it was based on the amino acid profile relative to human needs, and it was based on the digestibility of the protein in the food, and that was it and And uh, you know, I personally think we need to redefine protein quality because to me, quality is also about the impact or the risk for d- death and disease. You know, I think protein quality maybe should also factor in a little bit about the sustainability of the protein sources uh, for people and And so, I think we we need to expand that definition a little bit, but it but so just people so people understand that. The protein quality, when we're talking about, um, you know, essential amino acid profiles and and digestibility, there are a couple of things to to recognize. The first is that all plants contain all nine essential amino acids. So the the proteins we build in our bodies are uh, made up of 20 different amino acids. And nine of those are considered essential, which means we don't have the capacity to manufacture them in our bodies. We have to get them from food. And and so when we look at those nine amino acids, this is what almost no one realizes. And that is that all nine of those essential amino acids are made by plants. It's, it's why they're essential. You know, we and most animals don't make them. They, 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 we have to get them from, you know, we have to get them from, from uh, elsewhere. We have to get them from our diet. And, and so it may, to me, it makes no sense to think we, get, we can't get them from plants. It's where they come from. We, we get them from plants either directly by eating plants or indirectly by eating animals that ate plants or very indirectly by eating animals that ate other animals that ate plants. But they all came from plants. So it makes no sense to think we can't get them from plants. But but the quality thing is, you know, many people um, think of it as as plant foods are lacking in certain amino acids. And they think that they're completely lacking that, you know, um, uh, grains are low in, in lysine. So they don't contain any lysine, but that's not true. They do contain lysine. They just contain less per gram of protein than what humans require per gram of protein. And that would matter if all you ate was one food. So let's say it was wheat. And, you know, wheat contains about 22 milligrams of lysine per gram of protein. And adults need 38. Children need 58. So adults would need to eat almost twice as much of that wheat to get all the you know, like, let's say you needed 50 grams of protein, and all you got was 50 grams of protein. Well, if you were if you were eating wheat, you would have to eat um, twice as much wheat to get all the lysine you need from that food, right? But no one eats one food. And and we eat a mix of foods. And so grains are a little low in lysine. Uh, And then we always say that legumes are low in methionine and cysteine. And that's you know it's true, but just barely. So, <laughs> so soy, you know, it soy provides like I think it's twenty seven milligrams of 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 methionine and cysteine per gram of protein. And preschool children need twenty eight, um, and and adults need nineteen. So there's more than enough. It's absolutely you know got all the essential amino acids in the in the amounts for every other. Age group, except for preschool children, they would need if 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 all they ate was soybeans, they would need six and a half tablespoons of soybeans to get enough protein to meet their needs. But if if they got all of that from soybeans, they would need seven, which means they would need an extra half a tablespoon of soybeans to meet their needs. So just to give and and it's the same story with black beans, or you know, you look at all of these lentils and and they're so slightly short I think black beans have 26 milligrams of of, of of methionine cysteine per gram of protein and preschoolers need 28 so it I mean legumes are essentially they have all the essential amino acids um you need beyond chi- beyond preschool age uh into adult uh age and so so when you think of it that way when you're eating a mix of all of these foods all of those essential amino acids are provided. And there was a time, you know, maybe 30, 40 years ago where we thought we had to carefully combine these plant foods, Um, but but we didn't realize that we have these amino acid pools in the body that, so if we eat more than enough lysine from, you know, a lentil soup, it gets stored and all we have is a piece of toast for, for our next meal, um, we just draw on the amino, amino acid pool to build proteins from, you know, for, for the for our, our needs, whether we're building enzymes or you know, whatever we're building. Um, and and so it's it's less of an issue than a lot of people realize. So now getting back to the to the leucine. So, you know, leucine and other branch chain amino acids, isoleucine and valine are really important for building and maintaining muscle. Um, they stimulate protein synthesis and skeletal muscle and other tissues. They inhibit muscle loss. They improve recovery. Um, of the three branched-chain amino acids, leucine seems to be the most important for stimulating protein synthesis. However, you know, they, all, they all play a role. Um, So most recommendations uh, for athletes emphasize high quality animal protein and whey-based protein powders to ensure sufficient branch chain amino acids. And there's no question that these foods do, they are more concentrated sources, but it is absolutely possible to meet needs without animal products. Plant-based athletes can get enough leucine From legumes and soy foods, and uh, wheat gluten is surprisingly rich source of leucine, which which comes as a surprise to a lot of people. Wheat gluten is low in lysine, but it's not low in leucine. It's quite high in leucine. It's actually one of the richest source of sources of leucine. Um, And then veggie meats and seeds and nuts and grains and all of those things. And and so you know, I actually calculated. I I did um you know a little bit of a uh, you know um, a menu for an athlete, and 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 what an athlete needs in terms of branched chain amino acids is is pro- well you know the estimates are or or recommendations are often seven hundred to three thousand milligrams per per meal, and and my you know my um, menu came up at over ten thousand, so it was certainly enough, and 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 of course some people choose to to supplement with branched chain amino acids. Uh, um, and, and that may help with, with muscle growth and improving recovery and all of that. Um, and, and it can help for some people to reduce muscle damage and muscle soreness. And, but but the, the studies on endurance athletes haven't been that promising. They show that it doesn't really enhance their performance much. Um, but it may delay feelings of fatigue, it may help with mental focus. But for strength athletes, it does seem to help uh, with gains in muscle mass. And, and, and so strength-trained athletes may want to use some supplemental uh, branch chain amino acids. And, and, you know, the, the amounts, well, some, some recommend, you know, four to six grams taken after exercise um and and basically you're looking at uh if you're doing a bcaa supplement uh, one that that is mostly leucine so maybe a 2 to 1 to 1 ratio of leucine to isoleucine to valine um and and then you know your the upper limit that's usually recommended is 500 milligrams uh, per kilogram body weight and and so there is an upper limit recommended for men at 35 grams a day but there isn't a similar recommendation for women so i would just think that you know you would look at the weight and say well for women it's probably 25 or something but women aren't always lighter than men or you know small that much smaller so it would depend on body size i think more than gender but one thing that I, I think is worth mentioning is there are some cautions for people with kidney disease or diabetes. Um, because, you know, branched chain amino acids activate the mTORC pathway, and that can stimulate cell growth, including cancer cells, and negatively affect uh, insulin sensitivity and glucose metabolism. So I think that even though it can be useful for some elite athletes, most people don't need to. Take branch chain amino acids. And, and we do need to
0: recognize these potential downsides as well. What an amazing <laughs> answer. Thank you for all that. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. Oh, no, you're so thorough. I appreciate it. I appreciate all the nuanced detail. I think that's what really matters. Um, and you answered my question I was going to ask about whether there's any benefit to BCAA supplements or not. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> it was good to hear that. I actually have some in our cupboard. I use it once in a while. Well,
1: you know, I have a. I do have a good friend, uh Sonia Looney. Do you know Sonia? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. So, I've had her on the podcast actually.
1: Yeah. So Sonia um uh did use branch chain amino acids for a while. I don't know if she's still using them, but she did say that she found it it to be helpful for her. And she's a, you know, she is mm-hmm. an endurance
0: uh athlete, She's amazing. So <laughs> yeah, she's pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um along, along the lines of the branched-chain amino acid supplements, sometimes you see in the stores beside them the essential amino acid supplements. Do you think there is, like if you would recommend one over the other, or what are your thoughts on essential amino acids?
1: I, I, you know, I don't think people really need to go that route. Um, yeah. Certainly, if you want to boost uh, all essential amino acids, you could just go with a protein powder um,
0: as opposed to an amino acid
1: supplement like
0: that. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe I can ask you about protein powder then. Sure. Um, so we basically established that you can get, as an athlete, most of your protein from whole plant foods. But I think even like in my personal opinion, sometimes a protein powder is it's convenient. Um, sometimes you want to add a little extra to your smoothie. So I'm curious what your thoughts on protein powder are. And yeah, maybe you can just talk about that. I agree that with second, you. I think
1: that I I completely agree that, that it's a convenience thing. It's a, just a really easy way to add protein, but, but it's also a little bit more because the protein and protein powder, it, it, it's, it doesn't have the fiber that reduces absorption. So it's mm-hmm. very, very bioavailable. So it can really provide quite a boost for athletes uh, and especially plant-based athletes who may struggle to get enough protein at times. Um, but, you know, I, you know, I would just say that people need to be very conscious of their, you know, choices of protein powders. Um, and, and so, you know, well, I don't think they're absolutely necessary. Um, you, you want to just, you want to, you want to look for one that, you know, ideally has a mix of plant proteins to boost overall Protein quality in the in the product. Um, and, and so, you know, soy and pumpkin seed and hemp seed and pea, you see, and rice, you see those in, in a lot of uh, um, so, uh, protein powders, but a lot of them are just a single amino acid. So having that variety is good. Now, what is what was really shocking to me when I looked at the amino acid profile of all the different protein powders. The, the one that tops the list for leucine is actually corn. Really? Yes. And potato protein no is way. number two, <laughs> higher than all of the other proteins. Now, the reason why it's so shocking is because these aren't foods we associate with protein. But if you extract the protein from them and concentrate it, They're both really high in leucine, which is so surprising. And so that, you know, having that kind of mix um, is, I think, a, you know, really good idea. And then the other thing that you want to look at is the ingredient list, because there are a lot of protein powders that contain a lot of sugar and fillers and additives and preservatives and thickeners and even artificial colors and all that garbage. And, and there are some, there, there have been some testing looking at environmental contaminants as well, like lead and arsenic and cadmium and mercury and BPA and pesticides. And, and I know the Clean Label Project has looked at that and you can always look for a third-party certification stamp that ensures that the product's been you know, screened for safety, but, but basically they're they're not all really clean. <laughs> And so we want to be a little bit uh, careful about that. There are, you know, I, I don't know if you want me to mention any uh, brand names. I was, I was actually going to ask if
0: you, if you're allowed to. Yeah, I within, mean, within I, Canada, I've been
1: impressed with one called Compliment, which okay. does provide a mix. It's a, they're a very conscious group that that really is trying to absolutely minimize these contaminants. So I think that's a really good choice. And I, I'm not familiar with all the choice, but you can de- mm-hmm. all the choices, but you can definitely check out the sort of findings of the Clean Label Project. And I'm not sure if that's 100% reliable, if there are other people that have tested, um,
0: but you know, you can do a little bit of your own research there too. Okay, for sure. I think the one yeah. I have right now is um, Brendan Brazier's original brand, like Vega. I think Vega. Yeah, and, yeah. and it
1: came out really high on
0: contaminants. Mm. That's really high. <laughs> That's disappointing. Which was
1: it was so surprising to me, and and I would check to see if they have mm-hmm. some, you know, if they've if they're they've made commentary or if they've done their own testing, or but uh, but yeah, it did come out as being one of the the more highly contaminated.
0: Okay. Well, maybe once I'm through what I have here, I might look up some of these other brands and and I'm so excited to hear about corn and potato protein. That's like, that's not wild. Yeah. I would never have guessed. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So a lot of the, I'm curious what your thoughts on whey protein are. Like, I know there's, you listed a whole bunch of reasons to avoid like animal protein in general, and it's a packaged food. It comes with lots of like Things and molecules that we typically don't want to ingest. that can even risk or increase our risk of chronic disease, all these things. But specifically whey protein, is there any? I've heard um, from some athletes that claim it's inflammatory. It might not allow you to recover as quick. Um, can you add any thoughts to yeah.
1: that? I mean, most of the studies I've seen on whey protein are pretty positive. They, mm-hmm. they, it, it tends to be a highly uh, usable, bioavailable. Uh, the amino acid profile is excellent, so it supports muscle growth really, really well. Uh, and so, from that perspective, I don't think it's an issue. For me, it's an issue in terms of the ethical perspectives, uh, and and that's you know, and and of course, uh, we do have some some evidence that that um, dairy proteins can be issues for a lot of people. Uh, so in terms of sensitivities and so on. Um, so I think for those reasons, I, I, and and the other thing is that there there have been studies comparing, you know, the whey protein to certain plant proteins and the plant proteins um, are very, compare very favorably. And so to me, if there's a choice, uh, when you look at just if people would be open to looking at the ethical implications mm-hmm. of their food choices,
0: There's no contest. Yeah, just to pick the kinder option, that's kind of... Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Um, Moving on to other potential supplements that some athletes consider or could potentially benefit from, related to the whole protein story is creatine. Um, Like, as you're aware, creatine is naturally found in animal tissue and animal muscle. And we endogenously make our own about, uh, about one gram a day, I think. Um, But if someone's completely plant based, we're obviously not consuming any extra creatine in the forms of, because we're not consuming animals. Um, Do you think there's benefit in athletes supplementing with creatine?
1: I think the evidence for creatine is probably better than for most other supplements, uh, generally for athletes. Um, You know, creatine levels in plant based athletes are. Considerably lower than for omnivorous animals. And the evidence suggests that plant based athletes may actually enjoy greater benefits from taking creatine than omnivorous athletes. Um, and there, there is a very specific protocol if people are taking uh, creatine. And I think it's, you know, we're looking mainly at strength and muscle building with creatine. Um, so, you know, where the protocol, it's really important for people to follow a proper protocol. And and the National Institutes of Health actually suggests that doses of 20 grams a day divided into four portions of five grams each for up to seven days, it's called the loading phase, is, is safe. And then you would follow that by about three to five grams a day for up to 12 weeks. And that's the maintenance phase. And that's considered safe for adults and, and and but there are some potential adverse effects like people sometimes retain fluid sometimes get cramps and nausea and diarrhea and and uh, creatine can be a bit of an issue for people with kidney disease so there are some cautions for sure with creatine but but the evidence i think is definitely in favor of its its use uh for for strength athletes who are plant based that it may may make a
0: difference. Okay, perfect. Yeah, to my knowledge, it's one of the most researched sports supplements yes. out there. So Absolutely. I think we have pretty solid yeah. evidence to support its use. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Are there any other supplements you feel worth mentioning? Like, I think it goes without saying that if you're plant-based, make sure you have a source of B12, vitamin D, but is there anything else? Um, that well, needs-
1: I, I I think for individuals eating plant-based diets who are athletes, I don't think it's a bad idea to take a really good quality multi. And just to boost all of the sort of base levels of, uh, I mean, you're probably getting some, you know, a lot of nutrients from eating a lot of food, but still you can, you can give a little bit of boost to some of those trace nutrients that could run a bit, fall a bit short. But you mentioned, you know, B12 is, is critical. Uh, vitamin D may fall short. Iodine is something to think about now for athletes. Um, A lot of people are eating more salt than the general population, but a lot of people who are vegan um, tend to pick pink Himalayan sea salt or something like that, a non-iodized salt. And, and of course, iodine is more concentrated in things like um, uh, fish is a, is a, a major source. Eggs is a source. Dairy products are sources because we use iodine to clean the teats when we're milking cows and so forth so um those foods have more iodine um the main source in a in a, a fully plant-based diet would be seaweed and a lot of us don't eat seaweed Not <laughs> we eat anyway. it very rarely we don't eat like japanese where we're eating seaweed salads and and such no now seaweed is so high in iodine it's easy to exceed your upper limit if you're eating a lot of it so, for example, kelp powder—it's a sixteenth of a teaspoon that provides 150 micrograms, which is the RDA. Um, so you can imagine if you eat a whole uh, teaspoon, <laughs> um, you'd be over the upper limit, which is 1,100 micrograms. So, so um, yeah, we just we need to be aware of that if we're eating seaweed. Now, that's not the case for nori, which is the seaweed that you use to make sushi. Uh, and, and you know, you have those little nori pack snack packs, um, the amount in, in those seaweeds is actually very moderate, and you could eat a fair bit of those and not have to worry. I think a sheet might have somewhere 70 to 150 micrograms, depending on, you know, the source, but that's that's just a very reasonable level of intake. And so, but we do need to be aware that iodine can fall short in plant-based diets if, you're, if you eat no seaweed and you're not using iodized salt. So that's another nutrient just to be aware of. And then the other um, that I would you know, really consider is long chain omega-3 fatty acids. Mm. So they, um, you know, we, we really don't have a direct source. There is a little bit of EPA in seaweed, but again, we don't eat that much seaweed. Uh, there's DHA in eggs for people that are, you know, lacto-ovo-vegetarian and include eggs. But, but again, it, it, it would depend on what the chickens are fed. If they're fed, you know, flaxseed or fish, then they'll, their eggs will be much higher in omega-3s. Um, but generally, long-chain omega-3s, we rely on um, interior conversion of alpha linolenic acid. And that is fairly inefficient, especially in men. Um, it's more efficient in young women because we, you know, you would think because we're we're preparing to, you know, um, grow a baby, <laughs> we might have a better ability, and that but that essentially is the case that women tend tend to convert young women tend to convert more efficiently. But all that having been said. Um, there's still a lot of question marks about adequacy of long chain omega threes. And we do tend to have much lower levels in our bloodstream and a lack of of DHA especially can be is associated with, you know, um, you know, cognitive decline, for example, as we age. And so I just I think it's a nutrient that that it, it makes sense. Again, this is so interesting, because fish don't make EPA and DHA. They actually get it from microalgae, uh, you know, down down the food chain, and and so so can we. Yeah, we and and there are a lot of companies that that grow micro DHA EPA rich microalgae. and it's available in supplement form, and and so it's it's really not that expensive and and not that difficult to find anymore. I can remember years ago when it, when the only EPA DHA supplement. Uh, That was vegan um, based on microalgae was encapsulated in gelatin. And so there really wasn't any vegan sources that were really truly vegan. And uh, but now there's just tons of them. So that's another, um, you know, supplement just to consider for sure. Okay.
0: Yeah. Just making sure you're checking all the bases. Yeah. Um, For someone that does want to supplement with uh, DHA. Do you recommend an algae oil that has DHA and EPA? Like, do they always have both? No, they don't always have both.
1: Some some are just EPA, some are just DHA. Um, but I think having both is is important because they do different things. So EPA um, is you know goes to forming all sorts of eicosanoids. Uh, DHA goes to forming some resolvins and some protectins but it's different and they serve different purposes in the body. And so having both, I think, is really uh, the best
0: course of action for sure. Okay. And how much of each are we looking for? I've, I think like 500 milligrams DHA is typic- like a typical serving that I've seen. Yeah. So, so e- e- essentially, you know, what's generally recommended
1: for the, the average adult Is to have two servings of fish a week to get enough DHA and EPA. And if you think about how much you would get from two servings of fish, you might look at two thousand milligrams. And so, if you divide that by seven, you're taking it daily. Um, You're, you know, you, you, yeah. It might, you might. Many people recommend two or three hundred milligrams a day. Uh, I think during pregnancy and lactation, you want to go closer to the five hundred. Uh, and and then um, for children, you know, it, it, smaller bodies, it ranges from about 70 to 160 milligrams a day. Uh, for people that have low levels and who have had their blood levels tested, they may have to go closer to 800 to 1,000 milligrams a day to, to to get back in the range that they would be hoping to, to be in. And so it just depends. But I think it, it, the other option is to do, you know, Five hundred or a thousand milligrams two or three times a week, even mm-hmm. and and just sort of as if you were you know eating
0: fish two or three times a week. The same okay. kind of idea. Yeah. yeah, that's perfect, actually. okay. I need to be more consistent with that. i'll I'll buy it and then I'll run out and then I won't buy it again. so yeah, good exactly. reminder <laughs> um, okay, coming back to overall protein intake, uh, is the timing of protein intake important for athletes?
1: Like,
0: I, yeah, yeah, I, I would say it it is.
1: And, and there, you know, it's interesting, it used to be that there was what we call this, um, you know, anabolic window or whatever mm-hmm. for, for, um, f- you know, for consuming protein, right. And it was like 15 minutes to Uh, an hour after you, you know, you consume the protein. And and, um, we now know we have enough evidence to say that we, you know, probably don't have to be quite that rigid with our anabolic window. Um, And so actually the, you know, the position statement from the American College of, of Sports Medicine and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics is, is, um, you know, to be having some protein within two hours of exercise. But even that now is it's a little bit up in the air. Um, But what seems to be more important than that, you know, anabolic window is your total protein intake and the distribution of protein throughout the day. So rather than having 10 grams at, at breakfast and 10 grams at at lunch, and then 80 grams at supper, you know, the big steak that people would do or something like that, you're wanting to have about the same amount for each meal. And if you have a snack before bed or whatever. So if you're an athlete that needs 120 grams of protein, you might be eating 30 grams at each of your four meals, for example. And, um, you know, and uh, if you're, you know, a lot of recommendations are for you know, 0.25 to 0.3 grams of high quality protein per kilogram body weight um, within two hours of eating. And that, for most people, is around 20 grams of protein. Um, And and that, I think, could help boost uh, muscle gains. But again, it's just not considered to be as important as it used to be, um,
0: as we used to think it was. (laughs) Yeah, I remember. I used to be so paranoid about my anabolic window, like to the point it was actually. It's funny looking back now, but yeah, it's like when something's repeated so many times, you believe it, and until you have yeah. evidence to suggest otherwise. But yeah, exactly. That is reassuring now. So now you can go to the gym and then just go home and have your meal. You don't have to be, like, <laughs> exactly having shakes in the car. <laughs> um, is there a maximum amount of protein that can be absorbed, um, like per meal or at one sitting, that you're aware of?
1: Well, they, you know, we often we used to see that 20 to 25 grams was considered sort of the upper limit of what you would utilize in one meal. But we actually had a study in 2018 that suggested that it, it's a little, little bit more than that. And they suggest that athletes target about 0. 0.4 grams of protein per kilogram per meal across a minimum of four meals in order to reach that sort of 1.6 grams per kilogram per day. And so for a person weighing somewhere between 60 and 80 kilos, that would be about 24 to 32 grams of protein per meal. So I, you know, and then there are some, um, there's some evidence that seniors may need as much as 40 in a meal for uh, muscle building. So that's kind of scary. Um, but, but essentially, you know, probably for most people, you're looking
0: at about somewhere between 20 and 30 grams of protein per meal. Okay. And I think that's very achievable. It adds up more than you'd think (laughs) if you actually start tracking it. Yeah. Like things that you don't think add a ton of protein, it like adds up and you're hitting that before you know it. Absolutely. (laughs) Um, okay. So we've tackled quite a few like myths we've covered, we've covered so much here, um, for someone listening, let's say. It's, it's a plant-based athlete that's listening to this and maybe they're not mindful enough of their protein and maybe they should be thinking about it a little bit more. What yeah. are some, yeah,
1: yeah suggestions? So, well, I think, I think you hit the nail on the head. They need to be thinking about there's protein sources at every meal and snack and think about swaps like, um, you know, just almond milk for soy milk, for example, or, or legume-based pasta instead of a grain-based pasta. Uh, so so those kinds of swaps can be really helpful but the other thing is to just think about or or to eat legumes and and legume-based foods at most meals and snacks so and soy milk and peanut butter are part of that mix you know it's it's, it doesn't have to be a bowl of beans at each meal so one of the things that I do to boost uh, protein at breakfast and I'm I'm not quite a senior but I'm 64 so I'm close to being a senior. So um, I to add protein into into my meals, for example, for breakfast I'll cook some uh oat groats or camut berries or some sort of a a grain and I'll mix small brown lentils into the grains to give a little bit extra protein boost. Um the other thing that I absolutely love is I don't know if you've ever tried this cast, but this is using lentils or mung dal to make pancakes or crepes. Ooh, it is the easiest thing in the world. Like, all you do literally is you soak your red lentils. So, you're getting lentils without the skins, either red lentils or mung dal, which is sort of those yellow looking lentils um and and you just um soak them in water just cover you know like a couple inches of water over top soak them for about a day or or even less eight hours is enough and then drain rinse and add and then put them in the blender and add water and and, until you've got about a half a half an inch of water on the top and then just blend it That's the only ingredient, water, the only ingredients are water and lentils. You could add a little salt for flavor and then um, you just cook them like a pancake. And I tend to put, you know, about, I don't know, a third of a cup or a half a cup of batter onto the frying pan. And I and I and then I kind of uh, make a, a circular motion with the back of a spoon to flatten it out a bit so it's not too thick and then, and so your your whole pancake is just lentils. That's all it is. It's awesome. and And I often make a filling with you know a creamy sauce, like a cashew sauce and sometimes white wine cashew sauce with you know different veggies and chickpeas and things like that. And then you use that as a stuffing, or you can use them as a breakfast pancake and just put nut butter and sliced bananas and some blueberry sauce on top. They're very, very good. And then, and then, of course, just, you know, think beans more. Think about when you're making a soup, lentil soup, um, you know, uh, black bean soup. Um, when you're making stews, when you're making pastas, don't just have pasta and, and tomato sauce or primavera. Make sure you add some sort of legume. It could be tofu. It could be, you know, uh, beans. And then... Uh, one of the things that I think is really valuable is to look at ethnic cuisines more like Ethiopian and Mexican and Mediterranean and all of these cuisines even you know asian uses a lot of tofu and and uh, and just be more focused on legumes and then the other thing is to to think about seeds as well nuts as well but seeds are more concentrated in protein especially hemp seeds and, and pumpkin seeds you can sprinkle them on cereals and soups and salads and and all of that sort of thing um and and of course add them to smoothies so So one of the things that I used to notice about people making smoothies is they would use water and they would, you know, uh, just uh, it was a lot of water and fruit. And what you want a smoothie to be is is high in protein. So I will add hemp seeds, frozen peas, uh, soy milk, which is like if you use two or three cups of soy milk, it's like eight grams of protein per cup. Uh, And so that can add a lot of protein without any protein powder at all. And then a lot of greens and, and, um, and then, um, you know, think about um, instead of using, you know, margarine or butter or something like that on your toast, use a nut or seed butter, for example, which increases the nutrition and the protein as well. And then the other thing, you know, going through the food groups is to think about grains that have more protein. A lot of people would be shocked to learn this, but about half of the world's protein comes from grains. So yeah, you just don't think of it as a source of protein, but it's a major source of protein for a lot of people in the world. And a cup of cooked amaranth or wheat or spelt or camut is about 10 to 12 grams of protein. A cup of cooked quinoa, because it's lighter and fluffier, is about eight grams of protein. And most other grains provide about four to six um, grams of protein per cup. So, so focusing on those higher protein uh, grains can can be a good idea. And of course, seitan or or gluten is is also a big concentrated uh, source of protein. And then um, and then really think about your milks. So. Um, these non-dairy milks that are fully fortified are great sources of calcium and vitamin B12 and vitamin D and all of that. But the protein content is all over the map. So you've got almond milk, rice milk, um, you know, cashew milk, a lot of these milks that are like one gram of protein per cup. Then you've got some of the oat milks that might be somewhere two to four grams of protein per cup. And then there are the soy milks and the pea milks that you know, range from about six to 10 grams of protein per cup. So just swapping your milk that you're using in your smoothie or on your cereal can really increase uh, the protein content of your diet. And then the other thing which you may be surprised that I would even mention is um, veggie meats. So um, for for people like athletes, um, these are very, very, high quality absorbable proteins. So it's, you know, often based on soy protein and yes, they're, they're not all equal. Some of them are pretty high in fat. Some of them are high in salt, but usually athletes can afford the extra bit of salt and they can make it way easier for athletes to meet protein needs. So, you know, having some sort of veggie meat in a sandwich or, or in a burger bun or whatever it is can, can, um, really make it easy because the amount of protein in those foods is about the same as meat. So, and the quality is very, very similar as well. And then I, I, you know, it, it also can be a really good option for, for senior athletes who are really struggling to meet those protein needs if they don't have hypertension or if they can pick something that's lower and you can get things like, have you heard of soy curls? Mm, yes. So things like that can also be lower sodium concentrated protein sources and even in the veggie kingdom you know you think about um, you know you can get eight grams of protein from a cup of fresh peas or five grams from a cup of spinach or you know so some of the veggies can add to your protein intake as well and then you just want to think of your protein source at every meal and your snacks too so you know you can roast chickpeas for a little snack or if you're having avocado toast, add some smoked tofu slices. You just always need to think about where that protein is coming from. And then the last thing I would mention is to have some smoothies. It For athletes, you can afford the calories. It just makes adding in calories and protein really easy and it it, because it's blended it makes everything more absorbable as well so and you can have it with like i said the hemp seeds and frozen peas and soft tofu or whatever you want or you can use a good quality protein powder
0: amazing there are so many good suggestions and tips in that i particularly like the frozen peas in the smoothie i'm going to try that one and then the lentil pancake crepes that's so cool i yeah they are I've experimented with them in a like a, my waffle mix before because I make like oh, really good, like banana oat, like blender waffles. Yeah, and I tried it once yeah. with the lentils and it actually worked pretty good. So, oh, good, yeah, no, my son actually turned me on to the lentil
1: uh crepes, and my husband and I both just love them. We, yeah, it's just such a treat. That's um, so awesome! <laughs> yeah, it's so awesome. And the frozen peas, um, it's cool if you're making a green smoothie with with all your greens, it just adds the most beautiful color. And it doesn't, I don't find it makes that big of a difference in the flavor. It's, you know, they're pretty good frozen peas. So (laughs)
0: That's awesome. And they're so like accessible and they're cheap all the time. And it's just like, especially now with the prices of everything going up, like frozen peas. Yeah, no, so good. Um, (laughs) This is basically my last question before I kind of let you go here um, as we close out. Um, But you mentioned a couple of times soy foods. And I know like the soy has been, um, everyone's talking about soy and it's a lot of the the negative myths of being kind of addressed. But I would love for you to just kind of give a quick overview. Should athletes, particularly male athletes, sometimes they get a little like iffy around adding soy foods to their diet because they're concerned about either feminizing effects or affecting their testosterone. What would you say to someone that's concerned about this?
1: Well, you know, it's so interesting you should mention that because it is such a big deal for people. And, you know, we actually, I think most of the concern stems from 2 case studies of individuals that were consuming 12 to 20 servings. They averaged 14.4 servings of soy a day. That's insane. And yeah, it's insane. It, they report it, you know, they had feminization effects. We shouldn't be eating that quantity of any one food. It's too Mm -hmm. much. Soy does contain uh, what we call isoflavones, or these are these are very weak estrogens, or or you know plant estrogens, and they can attach to estrogen receptor sites. And and they're you know what we call selective estrogen receptor modulators. In some tissues, they have these very weak estrogenic effects, and in others, they have anti-estrogenic effects. But we really do have extensive clinical trials showing no effect of soy or soy isoflavones on testosterone levels or estrogen levels in men, even when exposure markedly exceeds sort of typical Asian intakes, which would be about two servings a day. Uh, We definitely don't want to go to 12 servings a day, but generally we consider two to four servings a day quite safe. Um, more limited evidence shows um, no adverse effects of soy or isoflavones on sperm or semen parameters or at risk of developing gynecomastia, which is the man boob thing. And then I think it's a, it, it, you know relevant also to say that you know there's been concern uh, uh, about breast cancer as well. And and for years people were told not to consume soy if they were at risk for breast cancer or had breast cancer. And now we know that soy is is very likely quite protective against breast cancer, especially for those consuming in childhood uh, and adolescence. And there's also suggestive evidence that soy may reduce the risk of recurrence or or mortality in people that have already been diagnosed with breast cancer. And and the other thing is soy has been shown clearly to protect against prostate cancer. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's some evidence for cardiovascular disease, hypertension, kidney disease, and even bone loss and symptoms of menopause. So, you know, and for people that say, you know, that uh, it's a dangerous food, to me, the acid test is to look at the blue zones. And if you look at the blue zones, two out of the five, the blue zones for those people that have never heard of them, blue zones are places in the world where people live the longest, healthiest lives. So there are more centenarians than anywhere else in the world. But what's unique about these centenarians is they're still, productive individuals are still in their gardens and that's that's a really cool thing but two out of the five blue zones uh consume soy as a staple they're consuming about two servings a day in okinawa and in the in the adventist community so it, it obviously is not a poison if it's a if it's a staple for those kinds of individuals
0: <laughs> no, Amazing! Yeah. thank you for answering that so thoroughly okay. so everyone switch to soy milk <laughs> absolutely <laughs> As we kind of close out here wrap things up I always love to ask what is one thing that you would like people listening to take away from this conversation or a lasting thought you'd like to leave leave people with Well
1: uh, you know I would say because we're talking about athletes we know there's no question that animal protein is a more concentrated and biological or bioavailable source of protein and 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 there's a strong bias in the in the athlete world towards athletes needing animal protein. But I think people need to recognize that thoughtfully designed plant-based diets are absolutely adequate uh, for athletes. And in my experience, athletes can improve um, recovery and performance when eating plant-based because with plant-based foods, there's less inflammation, less oxidative stress there's less dysbiosis, you have a healthier gut microbiome, there's a lower risk for lipotoxicity and insulin resistance. They're just, you know, it, it, you reduce your risk of death and disease when you're, you're getting your protein from plants. And so, you know, it, it, to me, it just makes so much sense for humans to be choosing. Uh, when you think about how, you know, um, uh, the, the unsustainability of providing animal protein to the world's very rapidly growing population. Um, plant-based protein, why should we be funneling protein through animals when there's you know, a more sustainable, kinder way of pr- providing protein um, for humans? And, and so there's just so many reasons to be selecting plants. And so I just really encourage people to give it a try and to see how you feel and. And if you need more, you know, experiment with protein powders, experiment with some of the 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 meat-based or the plant-based meat
0: alternatives. Perfect. Um, the I can't wait to read through the book myself. I don't quite have my coffee yet, but i'm there's I'm sure so much information in it.
1: But I'll anyone... give you one on Friday.
0: <laughs> this is it. Amazing. <laughs> yeah. And and
1: uh, I'll be so happy to bring you one. We're going to go for a walk on Friday. So I'm so excited. So
0: excited <laughs> about that too. <laughs> well, okay. For anyone else that um, does not have the honor of meeting you in person, where would you direct them to get the book? Where's the best place for them to get a copy? Um, well, you know, you can probably get it from local bookstores, but of course,
1: Amazon is probably a you know, easy and inexpensive uh, place to get it. So yeah, plant-powered protein, and and uh, it was it was a lot of fun to write. And my my one of my writing partners is 81 years old, uh, Vicento Molina, and and uh, she's an unbelievably productive, 45 uh, year plant-based uh, person, and and then my son as well. Uh, so we, the three of us, uh, put this together. So hope you enjoy it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> amazing um, is there anywhere else you'd like to direct people to um, if they'd like to reach out connect with you where can they find you
1: oh sure um, i have a website brendadavisrd.com and so that's an easy way and also if you want to email me it's brendadavis uh, at telus.net
0: perfect I'll make sure I link to everything below in the show notes. People can click the link to get the book. They can go to your website, and just for anyone listening, you have so many good recipes on your website as well. So just like oh, thank you, going to your website just for the recipes, I highly recommend it. Oh, thank you! In the book, we have a lot of recipes as well,
1: and um, uh, they were all tested, and and our recipe testers were all determined to make sure every recipe earned five stars before they
0: were they were finished with them. So they're, they're pretty good recipes in the book too. Awesome. I can't wait. Um, Thank you so much, Brenda. I've learned so much today. I hope everyone listening has as well. And truly again, Uh, thank you so much for being here. Well, thanks so much,
1: Cass. I really enjoyed uh, talking with you today.
0: That's all for now. Thank you for listening. And I hope it was valuable to you. Please remember to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned and links to connect with our guest. If you would like to support what I'm doing, the best way to help me grow the show is to subscribe, of course, but also share it with your friends and family or on social media. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, you can also leave a five-star review and or a comment. A special thank you, as always, to Tyler Gatto for composing the theme music for the podcast and to Wyatt Pavlik for the excellent audio engineering each and every episode. So until next time, keep training hard, keep eating plants and take care.